Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What could be Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl, and welcome to episode 37 of Cage Rage and Nicholas Cage Podcast. How are you doing? How has your week been? Has it been snowing where you've been? If you're in the UK, if you're in the South Pole, I think it's a foregone conclusion. Um, Not a bad week for your boy. It's about time, really, that we brought back the old Ian updates. Now he's been he's been at it. Now I haven't mentioned him in a while. He's snuck into an episode here and there over the past few weeks, but I know some of you have been wanting to know what the old cuck general has been up to in that uh, in that time away. Well, he's only bloody gone and got this um, motion censored alarm in the shape of an owl, and any time you walk past it, it just this high pitched squealing just goes off I'm just trying to take the bin out I'm just trying to take the bin out you bastard now he keeps moving it around it was aimed at our front door it's been in about five different positions since then he said he's only put it in because he's trying to scare off neighborhood cats from shitting in his garden Um, now yes on one hand it's a noble pursuit but I don't think it's putting them off because the other day my cat definitely went over to his garden and was in there for a solid five minutes. I have to assume he was he was taking a shit, um, which, you know, if anything, I'm proud of him. I'm proud of my son for what he's done. He's uh, not going to be put off by these technological advancements, this security impeaching on his freedom as a cat. Um, but that aside, you know, more updates to come. But by this point, by the time you're listening to this, he has started turning it down a bit and turning it off when he's not in the house. So I think he's catching on um, that he's an annoying, annoying boomer. Um, but now we move ahead here to episode 30. I say 37 of Cage Rage and Nicholas Cage podcast. This week, ladies and gentlemen and others, we are looking at wind talkers oh yes um i was joined this week by mike west the lovely mike west to talk all about wind talkers the 2002 war flick directed by john woo uh we're going to get into all of that in the episode you know we get um real deep about the navajo you know we with this with this podcast it's a pretty tongue-in-cheek podcast you know we look at um the lighter side of the works of nicholas cage but I sort of say it to guests, you know, um, sort of before and after recording. These Nick Cage films, like Nick Cage himself and the choices he makes, it's like free jazz. It's like freeform jazz. You never know where it's going to end up. So you're going to learn something on this one. This is an informative episode. It's a fun episode. You're going to learn stuff about the Navajo in World War II. Um, we chat about our Funko Pop collections and why the hell Nicolas Cage hasn't had one yet. And... We have a discussion about sort of John Woo and all the behind the scenes tit for tat that went on in the making of this film. We get into it all in this episode and I think 
you're going to enjoy it. So before we get into the episode, just remember you can find the podcast on Twitter at cage underscore podcast, on Instagram at cage rage pod. Uh, we've since cracked the 500 follower mark on Twitter, the road to the 1K, the 1000 is well and truly on. Can we get there before the end of the year? I'm feeling confident. I'm hoping so. Uh, help out your boy and give us a follow over on the old Twitter machine. It's really appreciated. And as ever, you can find the podcast on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Deezer, Podchaser, and now, finally sorted it out, it is also available on Apple Podcasts as well. I gave in. I gave in to the Steve Jobs and his turtle neck wearing nonsense. So you can go over there. You can leave it a little review, a little rating. If you like, it's much appreciated as well. I'll be sure to be scouring it daily to um, try and soothe uh, my uh, already hurt ego. But with that said, the admin out of the way. Let's get into episode 37. It's Cage Rage. It's Daryl Edge. It's Mike West. It's Wind Talkers. Enjoy. So the year 2002 begins for the Golden Hog, that's Nicolas Cage to you and me, with the John Woo-directed war film Wind Talkers. Now it's based on the real story of the Navajo Code Talkers during World War II, and here we see Cage as Joe Enders, a soldier tasked with protecting a Navajo Marine who uses their native language as an unbreakable radio cipher. Now joining me on the journey to true Cage Nirvana this week to see if Wind Talkers talks a good game or is just Wind Talking utter bollocks is musician and host of the Into the Van podcast. It's Mike West. Mike, how are you doing today? Thanks so much for having me, man. I'm good. I'm excited to talk about Cage as always. <laughs> uh, and who isn't? And why wouldn't you be? Um, yeah. That's the only way I choose to start and quite frankly uh, dictate my Sundays in a uh, <laughs> very cold house in the north. It keeps me warm. Um, always interested to know, so off the top of the bat with these episodes um, and for the listeners, Cage, for you, um, obviously he's one of those, I guess, the marmitiest of marmite actors. You either love him or you hate him. Few people have in-between opinions. They are cowards. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but for, you, for yourself, Mike, what's what's your take on Cage? Where do you stand on uh, on the Golden Hog himself? I fucking love him, man. Like, he's always been... I think, as a kid or when you're first getting into films, you don't really go, this is an actor that does all these films. You just kind of watch a film, and as each film comes at you, you just kind of enjoy it. And I think Cage was the first actor where I was like, oh, I like him as an actor in films yeah and then it was kind of like after him it was like i really love like i don't think denzel washington's ever brought out a bad film so if there's ever a film that denzel brings out i'll watch that and cage was one of those people because i was like obviously i was a kid in the 90s so i was raised on channel 5 action films <laughs> so you, you always had like snake eyes and the rock and face off coming on and conair so i remember like having those kind of 90s action cage films yeah being watched when I was younger and being like, oh, I really like that guy in all these films. And it went from there and obviously like Lord of War in 2000s and then Wind Talkers and then even through that. And then as I'm kind of like a stubborn arsehole anyway, <laughs> the more people who were like vocally against Cage as an actor, I was like, well, fuck you. I know he's got great films there. And then I just stuck with it and I'm just ride or die for whatever Cage <laughs> I'll, I'll watch. 
I, I have to support that entirely. Um, it's good to know there's a, a avid cage defender um, on the podcast. Um, I suppose it was a similar thing for me, though, sort of discovering cage. I think by the time 2002 this came out, I would have been um, 11, maybe 12 yeah. when this came out. So this wouldn't have been a film on my radar. But I suppose, like, as you said there, he was always just in a lot of films. I remember... Um, I think Guy in 60 Seconds, I've said before, was the first one that I remember seeing. There was a period when mm. friends were obsessed with cars um, and from a local sort of video rental store, rest in peace VHS, um, <laughs> The Rock seemed to get uh, rented a lot by my friends for, for sleepovers. That always seemed to go on and it was just a friend of mine just doing that one line from Sean Connery. Obviously not. <laughs> just gargling <laughs> it there. Um so like my description is like he's he's kind of like Bigfoot, like he's always in the background, you're not quite too sure. Yeah. And then it's it seems to be a collective thing for humanity that when you grow up you realise that Nicolas Cage has been such a present um figure in in so many lives and childhoods and so many films as well that you don't realise. Um and then for me films like this where went under the radar and sort of never Never realised he was there, which is um, always interesting. Yeah, so there's some like sneaky films that you realise he's in, especially when it's like a big budget, like kind of like an Oscar grab or it's a summer blockbuster grab, kind of like Wind Talkers, where they're putting a lot of effort into it. That it's not like a cage-driven vehicle that you get now, especially with like Willy's Wonderland and stuff, where it's like this is a cage vehicle or like Mandy, mm-hmm. where he was more subtle in stuff because of either the way they were marketing or the way there was like an ensemble cast that you don't realize he's in those but then the ones that he's like front and center of are really enjoyable things and i'm so happy to be on a podcast where nick cage has just been like linked to bigfoot who is also another thing that i absolutely love this well this is what i mean there's something on this podcast for everyone there's there's uh, nicholas cage there's him being the golden hog sheer conspiracy um I've I've been sort of jokingly saying, um, sort of in other recordings, that um, I think if 2020 was anything to go by, what I need to increase the listenership is just more out there right wing conspiracy um, on this <laughs> podcast. So if I can, you know, somehow meld that all together, um, maybe even get true crime in there as well. I think that's the perfect podcast, right there. Um, <laughs> I don't know how you'd link Nicholas Cage to true crime unless he was. A fa- some kind of think, famous San Francisco killer in the eighties or something, but if you approach National Treasure as a documentary, and Ooh. then <laughs> then it could be a true crime in terms of theft, but then you could also go the frozen ground route where he's chasing down serial killers. Well, he is the serial. You could you could you could spin a few films into into true crime if you edited it quickly enough. Yeah, if I think if I edit it quickly enough, that there's no chance for the listener to sort of dwell on the facts. Not important. <laughs> it's just it's just bluster and propaganda. And then I think uh, I'm thinking big numbers. I'm thinking Rogan. I'm coming for you. T-shirts, <laughs> posters, um, and, and hopefully. And this is sort of a sort of side note. I have been hoping, uh, praying for years for a Nicolas Cage Funko Pop vinyl. Um, it it's just not happening, and I'm livid. I e- I emailed Funko Pop about this years ago. Ooh, tell me everything. I emailed them because I, I I was like the same as you, man. Like all the Funko Pops come out. Like I'm pretty sure I'm one album away from a Funko Pop. Like they're scraping the bottom. Of the album. <laughs> so like I, I was like, how have they not done any Cage Funko Pops? Yeah. 
And I, I emailed them being like, he's been in so many films, you could do an exclusive line just of Nicolas Cage ones. They'd yeah. sell. And you could have from like Wilder Heart to Mandy. Like his entire career could have iconic Funko Pop looks. And they just sent me an email saying like, we'll look into it. Thank you for the suggestion. Oh. But I, I, I did email Funko Pop a few years ago and I'd text my mate Johnny. He was like, Every, like whenever i say it, everyone's like of course like why wouldn't you have that like kevin smith's got like fucking 20 of them yeah and cage doesn't have one yeah this is this is what i mean and i couldn't be more on track and i think from a cage perspective you and i are two peas in a pod here um <laughs> i feel that in our collective friendship circles we are the cage guy um yeah. and i wear that with pride don't get me wrong but it, touching on what you said there are so many iconic roles that he's done that are so funkoable, poppable, whatever the term yeah. for that is. I mean, for the hair alone, the iconic sort of vest and denim hair combination, Conair, that's you know, yeah. that stands out to me. Um I mean face off there's a potential as well. You get the variants where they're doing each other's faces. Um I mean I, I what I wouldn't do, what I wouldn't give for a vampire's kiss Funko oh. Pop if Funko had the stones, and I don't think that they do, yeah. I mean, I th- I would have thought with the amount of, um, I mean, um, just even the Marvel Funko Pops, is there like 10,000, 10 million of those that they've not even done like a sort yeah. of... Are we going to get a venomized fucking Nicolas Cage before we get an actual Nicolas Cage Funko Pop? Call out Funko Pop right now, they're being cowards, <laughs> and you are 100% right that they need a Nicolas Cage line. I think regretfully we both already know the answer to that question um we will probably get a venomized ghost rider before we even get a whiff of cage um i suspect that we'll probably get national treasure 3 before a cage funko pop i suppose that's the big question what are we going to get first the cage funko or (laughs) national treasure 3 um in some respects we've been waiting 15 plus years on both um so i mean i i mean this being said sort of um now sort of segueing into my own Funko collection, I've got like four Bob Rosses. I've got all the Bob Rosses you can get, including the Deadpool Bob Ross. Mm. Um, it needs a cage on there. Like it's not, yeah. you know, it's not complete. It's that itch that can't be scratched. Um, yeah. It's crazy, man. I got my partner all the drag queen ones and you're telling me Alaska Thunderfuck deserves a Funko Pop before Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Yeah. Like where's the justice? He has an Oscar. He has an Oscar. And he doesn't have a Funko Pop. It is one of the, I think I'm going to have to call it here, one of the greatest atrocities in recent memory. Uh, and that's yeah. that's a big claim. I appreciate that's a big claim. But give the people what they want. And why can't we get yeah. that? We can get cardboard a- cutouts, like you can see behind me, for the benefit of your Zoom call. Um, <laughs> we can get like the sequin pillars where you brush it in, his face is there, and people can put his face all over... Uh, sweatpants and tracksuits and stuff that you can just buy on, you know, like Red Bubble and sites like that. But um, nothing tangible, nothing official. Um, no, I think the closest we've come in very recent memory to official cage-approved merchandise. I know he teamed. I think it was a website called uh, Legion M or something. I could be getting that wrong, but he approved a bunch of uh, Mandy-specific merchandise. Um, mm. which is out there, a lot of t-shirts and the like. Um, and import fees be damned, I want them. 
Um, <laughs> God knows what we'll have to pay if we have to pay more because of Brexit. Now I don't know, but it's a. Uh, I think it's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. Yeah, hundred percent. On if one good thing could come out of Brexit, someone starts needing to make Nicolas Cage official merchandise in the UK with profits coming into the UK. <laughs> if we can do, if we can somehow take back control if people still give a shit about that and make things in the UK, let's start making Nicolas Cage, you know, <laughs> knock off Funko Pop. <laughs> exactly. Well, if they're saying that the fish are happier because the British, maybe the merch is as well. Um, so ball, balls in your court, <laughs> Reese Mogg. Um, <laughs> oh. yeah, write to your MPs about this as well. Oh, I wish... I, you know, I, I try not to get too political on the podcast, but I wish that here in Leeds and in my hometown back in the Midlands in Staffordshire, both of my MPs are such the right-wingiest of the right-wing Conservative MPs. I've got Andrea Jenkins here where I live in Leeds. It's Michael Fabricant back in the Midlands. I can't win. And I know that that letter, even though when they reply to letters, the paper, I'll give them this. Very, very nice. But... Um, I think this Funko Pop one's going to fall on deaf ears. doesn't mean I'm not going to do it, because I definitely will, because what else are we <laughs> campaigning for right now? Yeah, like, whenever I write to my MP, I get a letter back, but I feel like if I did a Nick Cage Funko Pop email, it'd kind of be the same as, do you ever watch Parks and Recreation, when, like, they're just getting shouted at by the townspeople for no reason, like, there's too <laughs> many snails. I feel like if I'm emailing them about Nick Cage Funko Pops, it's getting to that level then. Uh, but I'll still do it because I'm still paying him, so they have to listen to me. <laughs> it's like, you work for me. You know, let's just make this work for each other. If this is what starts my my horrible path into becoming a corrupt conservative MP, uh, am I going to swallow pride and do it? Yes, yeah, because you're just I'm on Good Morning. T- you're on GMT, and there's just tons of Nick Cage Funko Pops behind you. Oh, and it's yes. like, I'm glad we could get past it. Yeah, it's like, you know, <laughs> we're out of toilet roll, but in the way that conservative MPs, when they're addressing people, they have that weird clenched fist but the thumb on the top thing like we've been very clear on the Nicolas Cage merch situation just jabbing it, jabbing it forward um, that, that I'll do it, I'll take the hit so that my Cage brethren can thrive um, and uh, you know, no regrets whatsoever um, but with, with all with all that being said um, looking to 2002 with uh, Wind Talkers um, this is a film on paper, and obviously we'll sort of dive into it a bit more as we go along. But Wind Talkers, um, a wartime World War Two action film directed by John Woo. On paper, uh, this was very tantalising. This was very mm. exciting um, to get like a film like this. Having watched the film now. Um, I can't help but feel a little disappointed. Um, I, d- yeah. I, I don't know about you on this one. Yeah, I got the kind of view from, like, obviously looking back on hindsight, because obviously I was, like, 11 when this came out. Looking back, I kind of feel that this was, like, Saving Private Ryan came out in 98, mm-hmm. and that kind of elevated everyone in that cast's careers to, like, movie stardom or it cemented them in like that pantheon of like hollywood blockbusters yeah. and i feel like wind talkers was trying to do the same with those actors like cage and christian slater and stuff who have had that cult following or they've been in films they have recognizable names and if this had landed i think that would have kind of done what saving private ryan did for that cast to this cast mm-hmm. but it didn't 
stick the landing and it didn't get the reception and whether that's due to the, the edits and the direction it was i don't know but it was i felt like this could have been a whole lot much more of an impact than it did yeah i again 100 percent agreed like i said on paper um you look at mm. the director you look at the cast it's like a pretty solid cast all all round. Yeah. um so you've got nicholas cage and you've got sort of adam beach or taking the reins on this one they were propped up by uh peter stormer noah emmerich mark ruffalo christian slater as well just to name a few others um so like a a, a solid cast and Again, like on paper, the story Windtalkers is trying to tell, it's uh, there's an interesting story in there. Um, there's a story to be told about, um, I say respectfully, I think one of the lesser known um, sort of stories about World War II, and I, I guess suppose the American uh, occupation of sort of Japan and that sort of wartime era there as well. Because um, I didn't really know anything about sort of the. Uh, the Navajo and their participation mm. and how crucial that they were in that era of the World War II. Um, I will stress here that I'm not a history buff in any way, shape, or form. Um, if I can't read it on Wikipedia in a minute or less, not interested. Um, <laughs> so if I get things massively wrong, I apologise in advance. Don't cancel me. Um, but again, I think it was there was an interesting story to be told. Um, I just... Um, and obviously you were saying about the edits there there's sort of a lot of stuff in the background that sort of led to this film being affected um, even that aside and we'll touch on that in a second I, as much as I like John Woo as a director I don't know that even if there'd been no issues sort of in the background of this film, I don't know if he really was the right person to take this film it was, the battle scene seemed really flat where it was a lot of kind of like stationary shots of like them holding the line mm-hmm. next to fucking like tree trunks and stuff. Yeah. Like there was never really any like and it was they were holding the line, you were shot they were shot, you know, from kind of behind them and then it would do like cuts to the Japanese soldiers on the other side. It wasn't considering, you know, you look at what he did in face off and with kind of like those fight scenes and action scenes that he did in that film compared to this, it's like it was quite static and it wasn't yeah. really you know, jumping in a style like what John Woo is kind of like renowned for, even if you only really know some of his films, it yeah. didn't have that kind of impact or like quick, or just, yeah, just like a like smooth, quick st- like style to it that he has. Yeah, I think with this, I think with the way that the MGM sort of the studio wanted to go with this film and have this be a wartime action film, we. There were some flashes of Wu here and there. Like, if you're looking out for them, you will just about see them. If you didn't know who John Wu was before this film, I don't think you'd go away from this film thinking, I want to see the rest of his work. Um, because a lot of stuff was a lot of stuff was lost, like we've been saying. Mm. Um, the big sort of uh, battle scenes and like the, um, I guess, in the large sort of scoping fields and stuff like that, uh, with the tanks and the explosive, the artillery. There was a lot of big action pieces, a lot of big sets um, with, you know, I think if you're looking for action, there is it to be found in here. But it felt to me like, um, one, I feel like even after edits, this film still felt too long to me. Yeah. And with the action scenes, which seem to um, just be the punctuating set pieces of a lot of stuff, um, they didn't really felt like it meant a lot. A lot of the time it felt like we just got 
um, I think maybe like four or five different here. It felt like the same battle four mm. or five times. Uh, not that I'm assuming that the soldiers of World War II thinking I could really go for some variation in my explosions today. Um, sick of these grenades. Get me some shells. Um, but but at the same time, it's like I felt like I was watching the same thing just happening over and over again. Yeah, and I don't know if it's obviously because it's like set in Japan around that area, the like weather and stuff, it was always sunny, it was always bright, and that mm-hmm. felt like really like weirdly juxtaposed to like what was happening. While if again, if you like look at Saving Private Ryan or another war film, even like Braveheart, it's got that kind of grayness to it that matches the tone of it. But this is like full blind in midday sun where they're yeah. having this like shootout, and it just didn't really have the weight or register to me. And one thing I realized, or like one thing that kind of put me off was even in the battle scenes like the composer who did the score james horner mm-hmm. who did like titanic and avatar and braveheart the score for me didn't fit the battle and it yeah even when he's um when yazi and um enders first meet in the canteen line it, the score behind it just it felt weird to me like the whole like music behind the film didn't fit the film as well it felt like a lot of pieces like again on paper because James Horner was a fantastic composer on paper this was a fantastic film but it just felt like the puzzle pieces weren't connected properly yeah definitely agree again um I mean like I say uh, James Horner's got a um sort of a laundry list of fantastic films he's worked on um which you know too long to sort of go through here um I think this is an, an, another one of those films and I I suppose admittedly coming from this from a point of I guess composition ignorance where um you know sometimes the score and what you're seeing they just go hand in hand it makes sense a lot of the times i just i didn't even notice there was a score apart from Mm. one or two of the quieter scenes um i think at one point i was like oh music that's not a big fiery (laughs) explosion what's 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 going on here (laughs) but to see um obviously that they got such a big name um in on this because it seems like um the studio really wanted to push John Woo with this one, but as he was starting to come through to Hollywood, sort of obviously coming off the back of Face Off um, a few years earlier, which was obviously such a in the um, I guess in sort of mainstream Hollywood a big sort of breakthrough moment for him. Um, he'd worked with uh, Christian Slater in a previous film, Broken Arrow, I think it's called. Um, but it seemed like from sort of what the dig and I did on this that. Um, he, John Woo had a vision for this uh, the studio didn't agree basically in any way shape or form um, so they just asked him to re-edit it accordingly which I, I think it's um, it's apparent, it's quite obvious that some yeah. a lot of stuff has sort of gone on behind the scenes here so um, whether you've enjoyed it or not um, it didn't make money for the studio, it was a big budget film 115 million was the budget box office um, just shy of 78 million lost about sort of uh, big numbers that it lost there for whatever reason um so obviously they asked him to re-edit the film but this one just left this very sour taste in the mouth of john woo uh this would be the second to final film he would direct in the u.s for a major studio the next one would be paycheck with ben affleck and uma thurman um and he left stating uh john woo left stating all Hollywood offers me is crap or big action pictures. I want to do something good. Um, so 
you know, you had a slice of cage, you peaked, couldn't capture that lightning in a bottle again, um, and then he just didn't return after that. Um, I mean, it looks like as well from what I saw, they were supposed to release it in two, well, a Christmas two thousand and one release, which is you know, War. That's always the film I want to go and settle <laughs> down with it at Christmas, Christmas time. Uh, I think mostly for Oscar consideration, but due to the events of nine eleven, pushed back to two thousand and two with a shortened edited version which seemed to lose some essence of the storyline. So it went from 153 minutes to 134. Um, if there was one good thing that came out of this, though, that much of the promotional material was recalled, posters, cutouts and the like, and have since become uh, collector's items. So huh. um, if you happen to have a 2001-era Nicolas Cage Windtalkers posters, you might be in the money. Um, so <laughs> if nothing else has come from the back of this. But... Um, I suppose, like you say, for they, I don't know if this is just the double-handedness of the big studios, but they, you know, they want to propel someone, and then suddenly, it's like they give a, they taketh away, um, and obviously, it sucks for John Woo at the end of the day. Yeah, that seems to be like Hollywood's thing is they want they they see a director or they see an actor or they see a creative team do something new and exciting, and it works. So Hollywood throw money at them to do that style, and then they do that style, and Hollywood go we don't want it that much and (laughs) then it's all the reshoots and stuff and it's always the same thing and it's the same in music where people go you did something really unique and interesting and somehow it became popular so do it again but make sure it's popular but do it popular by these parameters and the person like if it's john will go go fuck yourself like why would i sell out to do that in a way that's not fulfilling and it's the same with a lot of musicians will be like no matter how much like a studio throws at someone it's like if that's not interesting to them because obviously there's like for hollywood and films there's hundreds of millions of dollars involved in it all but that doesn't matter to the artist Mm -hmm. the artist just wants to create the interesting thing and that's what i think cage because his and john Woo stuff is like he kind of walked away from the hollywood stuff not necessarily by choice but he's gone to the lower budget independent films and it's the same with like if you look at elijah wood He's done a lot of really interesting independent films. And you see these people get tired of that machine and of those mm-hmm. constant notes and re-edits and cuts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I th- it's it's one of those things, I think at the time this would have come out, so if it was filming in uh, 2000, I mean, at this point, um, it's something I've touched on before, uh, Nicolas Cage, you know, would have been coming on off, off the back of films like, you know, The Rock, Conair, Face Off, Snake Eyes, uh, 8mm uh, with Peter mm-hmm. Stromero again, um, bringing out the dead, gone in 60 seconds. So um, a lot of sort of uh, decent budget sort of thrillers, big yeah. action films at this point, you know, coming off the back of the, the Oscar winning 95 as well for leaving Las Vegas. So he's still very much, um, I'd say, one of the most sought after actors in Hollywood at this mm. point so um, I'm sure the opportunity to sort of work with uh, John Woo again was um, would have been as tantalising for Cage as it would have been with anyone at this point in time um, and then sort of find it, always find it interesting with the way things that released obviously not filmed at the same time but Windtalkers was released and the next film that comes out for Cage's adaptation um, arguably one of his sort of best films so um, both I think struggled at the box office um, mm. adaptation. Like uh, at the time of recording, I've only very recently seen this. Sort of the age of uh, 
29 or go down as my regrets as why did i not do this sooner forgive me cage senpai i have <laughs> sinned um but from what i saw with this one as well um opened june 14th 2002 went straight to number three at the box office um paled in comparison by the born identity at number two and scooby-doo at number one also releasing <laughs> at the same time so um just like the hollywood machine you can't outdo the do um, which I think I I think at the same time uh, I I remember definitely seeing Scooby Doo at the cinema and having a great time. Um, so sorry, Cage, I was a different person. I was yes. younger. It won't happen again. <laughs> so um, I always look at like the, the the cinema of like the time as well. I think I don't think the Born Identity I was sort of interested in. It didn't really do anything for me. Scooby Doo looked like it was fun. Um, That's the thing when you see in the context of stuff because obviously again. The Born Identity was coming off the back of Matt Damon doing Saving Private Ryan, so he's again in the zeitgeist and ramping up from there. So the Born Identity is gonna do this wind tour because it's hard to, you know, market if you look at it from that kind of callous perspective uh-huh. as anything other than another war movie. But it's also got those elements of the story of the Native Americans, which isn't that bankable because unfortunately, because of America's past, it's not taught in schools and things. So people don't want to go to a film where they then feel guilty for the sins of like their country which has yeah. always been a big thing about native american culture is america haven't really owned up to that so mm-hmm. if you start trying to push it on and especially 2002 is nowhere near the kind of woke culture of presence so people weren't looking for like allegories or teachable moments in their war films outside of anything that didn't make them or made them feel comfortable yeah, definitely. I suppose even looking at now from on our side, the UK side of the perspective, um, even with the Black Lives Matter movement we had, yeah. this is a country that still does not want to own up to its colonial past, its awful history. Um, we're still defensive of the statues of racists. Um, and, you know, Winston Churchill, he's had a joint cube put around him. Um, so I think like, like in this, it's... Uh, it, it, a good story to tell but at that point when was the time to tell it i suppose um yeah. and there's a really interesting thing about like native americans like as a country musician and as a country fan like johnny cash brought out a song or he brought out an album called the bitter tears mm-hmm. which is ballads of the american indian and that album had a track on it called the ballad of ira hayes i don't know if you're familiar with it no no it go listen to this song because it's about ira hayes was an american native american soldier in world war Two, and do you know that famous statue of the soldiers raising the flag on Iwo Jima? yes yeah Ira Hayes was one of those six Marines raising that flag. Oh, that's interesting. He came home from war. And it's a song written by Peter Lafarge, I believe, this folk singer. So it's this old song written by Peter Lafarge. It's about Ira Hayes. And when he came home from being a decorated Marine, one of the most iconic images of American culture is that raising of the flag. Yeah, sure. He, he, He was raising that flag. He came home, got sent back to the reservation, died in a ditch as an alcoholic because of the way the country treated him he just didn't get the respect or attention he deserved alongside all of his countrymen and the culture and you know the native americans he is a part of mm-hmm. and um, with the bitter tears album they brought out a book called a harpy and a guitar and i remember i read that a while ago and that was the only real reason i kind of knew about you know the tragedies of the native american 
people because I'd read this book based off the album. They brought out like a like a tribute album and a ton of different country and folk musicians did those songs and reimagined them and it was really it's a really great album if you go listen to it. It's called what the fuck's it called? I think it's a hobby and a guitar and then it's as long as the grass shall grow as the record. Right. And it's about bitter tears, the Johnny Cash record. And that is all about what happened and it gives you an insight into Ira Hayes, it gives you an insight into the folk singers who wrote that song, but it gives you a massive history lesson, really well written, so it's, you don't have to be a historian, and it talks about what the American government and the American people did to the indigenous Native Americans, and it's a fucking tragedy. But that's the only real reason I knew about that, and I knew about this after I'd watched this for the first time, and then re-watching it again. With that knowledge, it just makes... The racism that like Yazzie and Whitehorse face by Chick and the other yeah. soldiers even more, you know, just appalling. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I was going to say, I, I can't imagine, you know, having that knowledge to come and review this. Um, mm. That must change the the second viewing for you. Um, but I suppose, you know, what you're saying there really touches upon, I think, another one of the issues with the film um so the script's been written by uh, joe batter and john rice who i think this might have been one of the first or only major picture um at the sort of point of record um the script to me um i, th- I think with the story it was trying to tell the story it should have told with the characters in it um just no one was really done justice here I, I I didn't find, and obviously touching on what you said there about sort of that that untold history, basically, um, this was a film that I think should have been focusing focusing on uh, Yazi and White yeah. Horse and their story and their contribution, um, which is really what the film is advertising. Mm-hmm. But so much more of this film, it is, um, and forgive me, Cage Senpai, for saying this you shouldn't have been the focus of this film. Obviously, no fault of his own. Cage, obviously, they wanted to tell an emotional story with him and how, I suppose, the morals of this film were supposed to be about, I guess, loyalty, morality, finding friendship on the battlefield, Mm. I suppose. But I think Cage's character, and again, it's more to do with the script than him, but he was given too much of that. Um, And there was this was a story about um, sort of, the Navajo helping to an integral job of uh, being code talkers, obviously, in this film and uh, being undecipherable and the Japanese can't figure it out. Uh, but this story about them is just too dictated by the other stories of white men. Um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how this film would have been done in like in the last two or three years, it would have been interesting to see how someone would approach this film now. Mm-hmm. Because even like the idea of the co-breakers and stuff is like how they were drafted and stuff. Like I saw a YouTube comment on one of the uh, videos for Wind Talkers saying that Star Trek fans should be worried that they'll get drafted for the next war because they're going to do co-breaking in Klingon. <laughs> <laughs> but with how like the Navajo were used as co-breakers and stuff, it was because their language wasn't written down. Right. And because their languages aren't written down and Native Americans and Indigenous people's languages and traditions aren't written down, it's all done through the oral tradition. The way stuff is written down was designed by 
you know, the mainstream cultural society as a way to eradicate those indigenous cultures. So it's weird, and obviously not touched upon in this film, that the reason they have to use these people as a way for code breakers is because they spent, you know, 200 years trying to destroy that culture. And the only things really left of the Navajo and the indigenous people is their language and those traditions that are still passed down orally. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting how the code breakers fit into you know, the wartime effort and stuff because it became this invaluable tool that until then they spent eight years trying to destroy. Yeah, I mean, saying that now, just sort of flashing more perspective into this because I'm sort of thinking back to the film and um, especially from for Yarzian sort of white horse who at the start of the film, they just seem to get on a bus. Um, he doesn't really, unless I miss something massive, it doesn't really touch upon sort of why the Navajo is just that this is already something they just happen to have been doing and that they're sort of the next in a line of new recruits, new privates mm. who they need to um uh to decipher code. Um so it's we only get little bits of sort of backstory, I guess, for for, yeah. for Yazi as well. We don't really get it with Whitehorse from what I saw. Um but he's I think when he's talking to Enders he's like Look, I just want to defend my country like anyone else. My son, uh, George Washington Yazi, um, which I think really um, the Yazi we have is pro- probably more American in many respects than most of his uh, his fellow recruits. Yeah, um, yeah, but I think, like I say, it, there's obviously there's there's so much history there. There's so much that they could have talked about, which I think we're doing. Um, Again, we say this with a 2021 perspective, but genuinely interesting, really enlightening, because again, for me, um, I think not until this conversation with you, I've known nothing about this. I know um, Ben Yazi sort of touches on it quite briefly towards the end of the film where they're all discussing what they're going to do after the war, and they're saying, I'm going to start a taxi rank, that's where the money is, I'm going to do this, I'm going to move there. And he says, um, oh, I want to be a teacher, sort of teaching American history, and then Chick, um, because every film has to have that one guy who's the racist, obviously, because tropes. And mm. um, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, that's great. Like another um, another one of you guys sort of teaching us about our history. But then he scores him. He's like, oh, you know, did you know this about, you know, this situation? And then he just shuts the fuck up. Obviously, I'm doing no justice by completely misremembering the example that he <laughs> uses. But the point is the racist got owned. So good um, stuff yeah. all around there. But I say a shame... A shame, yeah, really. Like what they like, it's it's admirable for the time what they try and do with this film, and with the studio interference and stuff. They can't obviously do like a twenty-minute, you know, Star Wars-esque like scrawl of how <laughs> the American people have fucked the Native American people yeah, for of so course. long. But the context and the history of this is really good. That if you do try and scratch the surface and you do want to realize what like the Navajo or the Native American people brought to not just the war effort but american culture in the face of consistently trying to be destroyed like I, like i said i'm a stubborn like fuck so if someone came over to my country and then decided to try and wipe out every single one of me do you think i'd ever get on a plane to try and help them kill anyone else <laughs> and it no. shows the kind of american spirit that was there before the americans the americans always talk about the american dream and stuff mm-hmm. that was there well before them from the indigenous people being loyal compassionate care and people who honor each other and that is what seeped into american values so the when you know chicks going off about being racist, and he's like the only difference between you and a japanese soldier is your uniform 
Yeah. Like, what Yazi is is beyond what he will ever be as an American. And they try and show that, like, White Horse and Yazi and these characters are admirable, you know, am- like, amazing, strong people. And I just wonder what it could do further. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I suppose at the start, obviously, you've got the two, um, I guess, intersecting storylines. You've got uh, Yazi and White Horse, who are, uh, they've joined uh, the ranks. They've made it through the, um, I guess, the translation classes and all the tests that they've got to do. And then on the other side of things, you've got uh, Nick Cage as Joe Enders. You've got Christian Slater as um, Ox or Henderson. Um, Enders and Henderson have been assigned them uh basically enders is assigned yatsi to protect um whitehorse is been given to henderson to protect um so it's it's sort of this this meeting of worlds neither particularly wants to uh be there uh more so sort of enders who as we see at the start of the film he's a survivor of a previous um uh occupation a mission into um with imperial japanese forces He's now um, sort of injured. Um, mm. He's scarred on the left side of his face. He's lost hit perforated eardrum, I think they said. He's lost his equilibrium, so he's having struggles to uh, balance and stuff. So, and all he wants is, um, I guess that's uh, an, another another sort of cliche because they. I think this is a film that tries to avoid cliches, but ends up doing yeah. a lot of them in their desperate attempt to avoid them. Um, and he just wants to get desperately back out to the war. Um, he wants yeah. to get back in there, but uh, the officer, uh, Lucius Malfoy, he just rocks up for about two minutes. Um, he sort of tells them, um, I think his character Major Mellitz is like, no, we need you to protect these uh, Navajo soldiers. Uh, they're going to break the code. So, And then it's um, them sort of uh, working together to sort of figure that out, but um it's like from there you know i can you know this the whole setup and everything that's fine you know obviously we have to start somewhere you know um and is just trying to eat his peas on that note he had a tray of peas and i've never seen anyone chew peas <laughs> so frequently there's about 10 jaw movements there 10 chews of the peas uh before um they tried to put a bit of sort of comedy intention in there between them with yazi sort of spilling like two cups <laughs> of coffee over him but um i did enjoy that i also enjoy like obviously before he gets assigned to like this kind of protective detail like he's in this slaughter of him and his men and he takes like a grenade two feet away from him and <laughs> yeah. it, it amuses me that everyone got massacred and he come out of it with like one scar under his eye and a bit of a cauliflower eel ear yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I was I was thinking that because obviously they're right at the start they're setting up two very different I suppose origin stories for the sake of the film. Um, you know, I think Yazi's coming into it very sort of fresh faced and ignorant of what war is. Um Enders is the seasoned veteran. But you're right, I mean that grain is basically between his cheeks and he walks <laughs> away. <laughs> he gets yeah. I mean, I say it again, all due respect. The man gets clapped uh, by a grenade between the cheeks, <laughs> and he's fine. He's absolutely fine. Um, you know, they, they the film seems to spend like a bit of time with Enders um, of him sort of dealing with, um, but not massively sort of PTSD. He hears he gets drunk on rice wine. He hears the voices of his former comrades. He has the flashbacks and he vomits. Um, 
and that they seem to make this point of trying to build I guess this connection with him but again it's one of those things like I touched upon earlier I just struggle to connect with any of the characters in this in this film um yeah I, re- I really liked Christian Slater because when you have like um Noah what's his name Noah the guy who plays Chick yes Noah Emmerich whenever you have like the horrendous racist guy is the trope you also have the i'm a nice guy who invites him to play poker and stuff and i really like christian slay is just a charming guy and yeah. in any film he just like oozes that kind of charisma so i liked him in that role as like inviting him to play poker and being the good guy in that scenario because mm-hmm. you have him at one end of the spectrum being the nice guy you have cage in the middle who hates like everyone but he's just like jaded and then you have like emmerich at the other side who's just the super racist you know trope yeah yeah like you said um obviously emmerich is chick because they have to it's a war film and it's set in a time that's not quite our own um but with uh, henderson christian slater's character it's i think this speaks more to christian slater as an actor um by default, I think outside of Mark Ruffalo, just because he had a bitch in mustache and he was just a sweet, cowardly character, um, Henderson just the nicest character because he is very affable, he is very likable. You can't help but warm to him, but almost like because he's the only person being nice to the Navajo, yeah. like you have to like him. You're not really given another choice. Um, and then him and Whitehorse bond through their little uh, harmonica and sort of windpipe. Um, duet because well they needed a reason for him to bond for some reason if it wasn't them it was Catholicism for a and there's an Yazi Um, but you know I was hoping that there might be a a flute harmonica album on the back of this no sign Um, unfortunately because Henderson gets decapitated so um, (laughs) it's so it's so brutal (laughs) yeah I I, I think that scene as well sort of going back to the um I guess the flashes of John Woo. When you get that hand-to-hand stuff, they're sort of in that square that uh, the Japanese forces are trying to capture Whitehorse because they know he's important, so they can't kill him. Um, but suddenly, Whitehorse, the sweetest, most placid man, just becomes a fucking wrecking machine. He's taking out Japanese soldiers left and right with that giant blade. He's stabbing legs. He's slashing people. Um, he picks up a significant body count. Um, <laughs> but then Slater, unfortunately... Um, lopped off a little off the top Mr. Barber he is decapitated and then you get like a one second peek of that horrible prosthetic head that's just on the floor yeah um, it's it, it's for the budget it had some of the effects and things were like really? yeah that's, that's what you're going with? yeah like it, you didn't get Rick Baker in for this or anything though? <laughs> it's like I said I think a lot of it's a lot of um the big action was fine for what it was, but there was like rarely a character in this that didn't have at least one bullet hole exploding from them. Um, and I think you can probably tell that Wu just wanted to do get some slow mo doves in there, um, yeah. have a nice little sort of camera sort of spin to capture the action. Um, but everyone got like a shoulder or a leg ripped into with a bullet at some point. Um, which I, I, I suppose this again, this is the film trying to build up tension, but I just couldn't connect to any of the characters. Um, and I suppose on the back of White Whitehorse and Chick as well, um, I thought no character really being done justice to. It seemed like the only reason that Chick sort of, to use a term, 
came around on the Navajo was because White Horse saved him with a bitching knife throw and killed the Japanese mm. soldier that was going to kill him. And it's kind of like, you've been a dick all film. And literally, yeah. this this man is following sort of like you know the this army code, you know, looking out for each other like brothers on the battlefield. And now you like him, yeah. like, like if if that knife had just like whistled past and missed, um, or if it wasn't White Horse, you'd still be a dick. Um, yeah. So, but that's that's kind of like true. If you talk about like you know racists and stuff, they don't come round because it's the right thing to do. That no one ever, you know looks at their racism because they want to and they like have a change of heart it's always due to a selfish reason of my racism is stopping me from getting on planes now because i decided to raid the capital or it's my racism has like led to bar brawls or i've had my ass kicked by someone for you know using slurs in public at someone it's never and they get fucking their ass handed to them it's never because they want to as a moral person it's because they suddenly realize the benefit of not being that person and then hopefully you know that leads them to be you know nice people like you have that um guy who talks to kkk members and talks them around and has interaction with people that blues musician i can't remember the name of uh, i think it's daryl dixon maybe but they it's very few and far between where a racist who's confronted with their own racism will like change of their own heart and it is kind of like a sad fact that like chicks would only stop being racist because he's like oh he saved my life mm-hmm. he's yeah. now a good person and then that would hopefully then be like well the native american people as a whole are nice it's a really weird trope that happens a lot in films but it's also a really sad cliche of real life uh, yeah it's some, i guess just some just disappointing reflections in, in modern life as well it, you saying that it was making me think um when some of the black lives matter protests happened here i think it was in london when there was the the picture taken of um the guy carrying the, the guy on his shoulder i i forget the name's quite a famous picture now but it's kind of like he saved your life is your perspective changed now or is it just because you were forced into this uh, ridiculous yeah. situation you put yourself in. Is that the only reason you're going to, um, and I guess again, come round and yeah. uh, hopefully be a better person on on the back of it, really? Um, but uh, like I said, he, Chicky, he's one of the four that are around at the end. It's him, um, Mark Ruffalo's character. I think it's um, Private Pappas, I think his name is, um, Yazi and. Uh, enders when um, yet again the American forces have been ambushed in broad daylight as you <laughs> said <laughs> um, so I don't I, I mean I don't know if this is just poor planning on both sides of the equation mm. but the Japanese seemed to know where the American forces were at all times and they didn't once think to strike at night uh, when the I think the terrain would have been in their favour as well um, you know, not trying to take sides in World War Two. Don't get me wrong. I'm just looking at this from a tactical perspective of an idiot. Um, but they had a chance, and uh, sorry, Japan, you blew it. And now here we are. So, <laughs> um, but obviously, um, with Christian Slater now dead at this point, I liked Mark, Mark Ruffalo's character. But I think again, only by the sort of tenuous default that he wasn't a dickhead. Yeah, um, and that he was kind of nice as well. Um, he was, had the very sort of normal emotions, like oh, we're on like a fucking minefield, and he was 
the only person who seemed to be affected by a death other than Yarty later on when his best friend was um, uh, blown up and he had the dog tags. Um, so it's like, I wanted Christian Slater and Mark Ruffalo to live, but I shouldn't have to want them to live just because they're slightly nicer. There was just nothing yeah. else, just nothing else to the characters. Yeah, it wasn't really an ensemble cast, and I, I really like, like I, I like Peter Stormare as an actor. Like, if you've seen his film Small Town Murder Songs, which is a really low-budget film of him playing a sheriff in a weird state in America where it's just a small town. He's a really... I, I really like him as an actor, and he doesn't really get a chance to shine in any big-budget film I've ever really seen him in or any mainstream film. Yeah. But if this has been treated more as an ensemble cast with, you know, the Native Americans, Yazian and Whitehorse at the front of the cast, it would have been a more interesting, fuller movie with different perspectives, but you know, but they relied too much on tropes and cliches. And yeah. it was just kind of like, this guy's nice, this guy's an asshole, let's carry on with the rest of the film. Yeah, it wasn't interested, as we've been talking about, wasn't interested in delving deeper into any of uh, the characters. And, you know, again, as we've been sort of waxing lyrical about, Enders and Whitehorse really should have been at the forefront of this film, but it seemed, um, from a script perspective, that, it, you know, Nicholas Cage is our big billing actor on this. We've got to give him his screen time. Yeah. So um, it, it comes into as well, this wasn't the right story to tell at that time because it was just never going to have been justice to... Um, that's like, like Cage, um, you know, sometimes we talk about the films where he phones it in. I don't think he was phoning it in on this one, but he wasn't really given much to do other than sort of wince and whine and just be sort of like a reluctant friend. Yeah, I, I think he was trying, and I read a while ago that like he went away and learnt the Navajo language yes. for the film, and then someone was saying it was like I don't think he understood the assignments of the role. I'm like, well, <laughs> who explained the role to him? Because then you probably dropped the ball on explaining that role. So maybe he thought it was going to be a more, you know, bonding friendship tale where he'd start talking to. Yazi and like they learn more or something together and they mm -hmm. like have a culture share so i don't know if like it was just kind of like kind of a punt but lost in translation along the way of it all yeah i'd, I'd read the same thing it looks like he went to learn he went and learned sort of navajo for the film despite the fact his character never speaks navajo in the film he speaks japanese he can communicate with the soldiers um but he's God had done all this extra prep work, which I think speaks to the um, the, the method ideologies of Cage and how much yeah. um, I guess I behind the scenes he prepares. It for films shows as well. that he also cared about what this story was trying to do. Was he yeah. was trying to embrace that culture that he probably didn't know that much about, and he was trying to discover more for the film and to hopefully dive deeper. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is what I say about Cage. You know, you find me an act that will go to more effort and then someone um even in his worst films even in the absolute dregs of his repertoire some stuff like you know for example left behind just to sort of name one um there are still every now and then sometimes you've got to dig for it there are little cageisms little things you can find that show like yes he's still there he's still there i knew it um you know we get a few of your classic cage screams in here but i think opposed with the films these felt earned at the very yeah. least that what he wasn't screaming because oh, classic cage um but yeah going back to that fact it looks like it was john woo that said that he'd misunderstood the character for which he'd been cast but 
raises the big questions like who pitched him the film, who gave him yeah. the script, who gave him the synopsis of his character. Um, so questions are to be asked there. Um, but it seems it looks like behind the scenes as well. It did what I think a lot of war films tend to do. They put all the cast through a boot camp. Um, most of the principal cast joined a core group of 62 extras for boot camp. A rigorous week of training. Uh, learned how to walk, talk and think like Marines. Um, which I, I was I was wonder about stuff like that because you know to what how much do you need to think like a marine for a in an intensive crash course of yeah, filming? It's, it's a weird one with those, and then you you hear about that and you're like, for this film, like, <laughs> yeah. like, and there's so many war films that don't do that that are also great war films. I assume like that you know I assume don't have that level of like commitment to you know, learning to walk the walk and talk the talk, and they still are really good war films. So it's, again, I think a lot of people tried on this film, and then it was just hindered by a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, the stunt cast, maybe, I guess, because, mm. I think, like I said, with the action set pieces, I think there were some decent stunts in here. You could sort of see the the, the more John Woo-esque ones. Um, I quite liked it when... Um, uh, Enders and Yahtzee had that sort of plan that um, because of something Chick had said earlier that um, Yahtzee looks like a Japanese soldier so he disguised himself, took Enders as a prisoner and then they were able to infiltrate this uh, camp and then when Cage does that sort of running dive through the top of the uh, uh, the camp I thought, oh that, yeah, that was quite nice there were some nice yeah. little stunts in here but um, again just a, just a lot of them a lot of them lost um, and I, you know you just come away from this and think well, it's like on one hand, you know, it's it's nice that even as much disservice as they've done to it, the, there's some Navajo representation here. But I come away from it and just think, just not, just not a good film. Just very, yeah. very disappointing. I'd be interested to see, you know, a Navajo person or a Navajo scholar critique this film. I'd be interested to hear their opinions on this and see mm-hmm. what they got right because obviously I don't know much about the culture and things i've only read a couple of books on it um so i'd be interested to see like a like not a valid perspective but you know a perspective weighted with that culture and with that perception to see what they did right and things to kind of you know throw them a bone in terms of this film how well it represented at least a few things yeah it would, would definitely be interesting to sort of see what it got right um mm. in the grand scheme of things um, and from a prop perspective, they got like a lot of uh, World War Two era props, about um, uh, over five hundred vintage World War Two era firing weapons, and seven hundred rubber replicas from collectors and prop houses for filming. Um, it said that MGM also brought genuine World War Two radios from a collector in Ohio as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they also use some um, real sort of training camps for some filming. Um, so you know, when it's America, that's the focus. They'll get it spot on every time, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, basically, because you know you're not, you're not going to do disservice to America in the war, are you? No, but that also relays back to you know what America prides itself on is its military. So if mm-hmm. you, you can kind of see instantly in the film that like America prides itself upon its military culture. And even, you know, the UK prides itself on World War Two. Like, people still don't shut the fuck up about it in terms of using it for the good old days and shit like that. So it's that pride 
juxtaposed to the you know shame of what they did to the native american people and it's that kind of clash where you can even see in how they made this film where they like put the like military culture and they get everything right down to the uniforms for the military and then they drop the ball on the navajo stuff yeah yeah just just a a big shame all around this film and again you know can't stress this enough on paper um it could have been so good it could have been you know so eye-opening there was a great story to tell um the the ball was just dropped the characters weren't that interesting uh john woo the behind the scenes stuff aside I just don't think was ever going to be the right person for this. It feels like, you know, John Woo had been building up momentum with the US films and like, we've got this one, we've got big hopes for it. We want to propel you into the limelight, into the stardom. Um, and then he just got um, just got entirely messed over in the, uh, in the process to do it. Yeah. Um, so not really anyone that came out of this film... I think with their careers boosted, no. um, unless you got a, a recall 2001 poster, you're the only person who profited from this film. <laughs> um, just looking on some of the uh, uh, accolades that the film did pick up, because it's always nice to look at the the smaller awards that um, out there as well. Um, they picked up best fire stunt at the 2003 World Stunt Awards. This was the scene where um, the guy with the flame tank, he was offering that Hershey's chocolate bar to that <laughs> crying girl, and that tank was shot and exploded. That got the best fire stunt. Um, at the 2003 First Americans in the Arts Awards, Adam Beach and Roger Willey won Outstanding Performance by an Actor in a Film Lead and Best Newcomer, respectively. Um, I found it interesting on the back of that, actually, with Roger Willey, that they had brought him on basically as a uh, consultant for the language, the Navajo language for the film. Um, but his screen test was said to be uh, so good that they ended up putting him in, in the actual film. Uh, so God bless you, Roger Willey. Um, it was also nominated, um, because there has to be a shit award as well, nominated at the 2002 Golden Schmoes Awards for biggest disappointment of the year. It lost out to Men in Black 2. Um, but it was also nominated against Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, Austin Powers in Gold Member, and Gangs of New York. And as we say on this podcast, fuck Daniel Day-Lewis for winning the BAFTA for Best Actor in 2002 instead of Nicolas Cage. And I can't stress that enough. Um, so, you, you know, um, there were some very, I think in the grand scheme of things, minor positives to this film um but like i say just just felt very underwhelming yeah it's one of those war films again that you know channel five will play and it's you know if you if you're in a room with your granddad and this film comes on you'd watch it together you wouldn't really bother with the plot and stuff it's just explosions it's kind of that almost old hollywood era of like john wayne westerns and stuff where it's just like, does the plot really matter? It should, but no. And then you just kind of sit there along with it, and it'll be a relatively, you know, not an enjoyable film, but it's like watchable. You know, mm-hmm. it's got its good moments in it, and you'll you won't waste your film. It's not Bangkok Dangerous. It's not like <laughs> it's not the worst film Cage has done, but it's yeah. like it's watchable. It's it's okay. It's not a complete waste of two hours and fifteen minutes or whatever it is. 
Yeah, I mean, from what you said, you can see sort of in the wake of films like Saving Private Ryan, why probably a lot of actors would have jumped at the chance to do a film yeah. like this, war films, um, you know, in the public conscious. It's all, all but like a guaranteed ticket to stardom, basically, if it's done right. Um, like I said, um, Yarzin Whitehorse just not done enough justice here. Um a few good scenes, some woo flashes of brilliance here and there from the classic woo repertoire, if you're looking at them with a microscope. Um, but even with Cage, and again, I hate saying this to Cage Senpai, but um, it's one of those films that I don't think he served the film by being in it. I don't think the film served him by being in it. This was one of those roles, respectfully, with the script lacking, anyone probably could have done. Yeah. Um, so it's perhaps a reason that it was sort of skipped under a lot of radars. Um, so you know, better war films out there. This one's just disappointing. It's lackluster. Um, and I would give it on my scale, which I always forget to bring back up, a bronze cage because cage always gets a podium finish. Um, <laughs> it's a it's a it's a very broad and flawed award system, but fight me. Um. But yeah, better better war films out there, and I, you know, I just just wouldn't recommend, to, you know, nearly two and a half hours of your time watching this. Yeah. To be honest, if you're uh, a completionist of Cage films, give it a watch. But like Rotten Tomatoes, I think gave it thirty two percent, and I'm not a huge fan of film reviews because I always enjoy making up my own decision because there's a lot of Cage films that have been panned. But it's it's worth a watch if you really want to. But it's worth a watch if you want to kickstart learning about more things that the film touches on it's it's a nice little gateway i think to things but if you want to watch a good film with nicholas cage and where he plays a character called joe go watch joe (laughs) (laughs) yeah can't can't summarize it any any better than that it's an okay entry point into the history of sort of the navajo especially in world war ii um this isn't the best joe um, that he's that he's ever played. There are better Joes out there. <laughs> this one's more of a Joe schmo. Um, if we're gonna if we're gonna push the boat out there, um, but yeah, I think that's a lovely place to sort of wrap up the episode. Um, and so Mike West, I thank you again for joining me for for such um, an intelligent and informed take uh, on this film, which I you know I wasn't banking on, but now I've learned more about the, the Navajo people on this yeah. than I did the two, um, two and a half hours ago when I watched the film. No, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. I I do enjoy these type of films because even if they don't raise the question properly and they don't answer things, it's always important to ask these questions mm-hmm. and look at these different perspectives. So I wasn't really planning. I had like some notes about like Ira Hayes and what the Native American people have done because I, I am in no means an expert on this. I've read a few books and I've listened to a few Johnny Cash albums. That's the height of my knowledge. So there's a million <laughs> million people who are well more qualified to talk about than this. But it is an interesting thing to look at. And obviously, I'm always about talking about Cage. <laughs> well, aren't, aren't we both? And on that <laughs> note, uh, where can people find you on the social medias as well? Cool. If you head to Mike333West.com, that's my website. That has links to everything. If you go on Twitter, it's Mike333West. Instagram, it's the same. And Facebook as well, it's MikeWest333, but everything's linked. I brought an album out in August. 
um and i should be touring but obviously it's a pandemic so i'm doing live streams and things so yeah just head over to my page and check out i'm all on streaming services and everything as well and into the van is on all spotify and podcast places that you can also find at your wonderful podcast wonderful stuff well you know you got all the links there go and support mike west when hopefully this pandemic is uh, over and done with in the year uh, 3085 uh mike will be touring robo mike i assume will be touring um albums at that time some nice robo country for you <laughs> um but uh no hopefully we get back to life soon if for some reason you end up in leeds i'll be there to support i, I love playing leeds man it's one of my favorite places to go i've got a decent little following there so i'll be there as soon as i can wonderful and i'll be there with bells on sir <laughs> uh, but with that said we come to the end of this week's episode i thank mike west again for joining me on the journey to true cage nirvana hopefully we will see you in the next one but until then keep on keep on caging it's all you have to do take care bye